ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal Land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagarat and Turrbal Land. Today, making a plan to get off opioid painkillers at the time of prescribing them. The remarkable and worrying story of a common environmental contaminant that's associated with an increased risk of Parkinson's disease. If you're a young adult with frequent sore throats, should you have your tonsils out and do the benefits outweigh the risks? But first, Norman, let's take a look at some of the big stories from health in the last week or so. And first up, I want to talk about one that's really worrying. The World Health Organization is has issued a warning about toxic cough syrups in other countries. There's nine countries where tainted syrups may have been on sale. And Babies have died from using these. Yeah, 300, and that's the reported ones. What seems to have happened is that some manufacturers of cough medicines in India and Indonesia in particular have substituted what's a common additive to um, syrups gives it, and gives syrups it, the syrupy quality is propylene glycol. And, um, and the prices went up and the assumption is that, they've, that some manufacturers have chosen cheaper and more toxic alternatives to propylene glycol um, to add to these as an additive to these syrups. But it's been incredibly toxic and, uh, and killed a lot of babies and some manufacturers have been taken offline. And the irony here, of course, is that cough syrups don't work. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about that on the health report before. It's absolutely tragic. Is there any chance that these syrups might have made their way to Australia? I don't think so. Um, there's no indication of that. It's it's really low-income countries, tragically, low-income countries um, buying cheap products that they can afford have been hit hardest with this. And kind of not really related, but drug shortages are a problem. We've been hearing a lot about drug shortages in the US. What do we know about uh, the impacts here in Australia? Well, in the United States, very com- two very common um, chemotherapy drugs, cisplatin and carboplatin, are in dire shortage. But I've been looking through the TGA's drug list and we put in some calls. Um, there are one or two cancer drugs on the list of shortages in Australia, but n- um, not these particular drugs. And we've spoken about this before. We have different suppliers. They've taken alternate suppliers in Australia when they've seen shortages occurring. Um, there's a, There are peculiarities about the generic market in in the United States and particularly where they've sourced it from. And it's not been helped in the United States. They've got a problem with the business model of generic drugs, but also a major Indian manufacturer of generic drugs has been taken offline because of quality issues. So, you know, there are problems with the, uh, the supply line. And another big health moment in the US was something we actually foreshadowed here on the Health Report back in May, a gene therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Yeah, this is a muscular degeneration affecting boys. It's X-linked in terms of the X chromosome. And this, uh, we talked about it, as you say, a few weeks ago. And this is gene therapy, which tries to fix up the genetic problem. The randomised trials have been, uh, was, the randomised trial was inconclusive, really, uh, with some indications that in younger children there may have been a benefit. And so the uh, amidst a fair bit of controversy, the US Food and Drug Administration has approved it for four and five-year-olds, which has created a lot of tension in the muscular dystrophy 
community where they feel that it should be given to older children who haven't shown much muscular damage. Um, this costs $3.2 million um, per treatment. Per so, treatment. Per treatment. So, but the savings over a lifetime. Say if it works. So there's, we're st- still awaiting further randomised trials here to see whether it works in older groups. But this is a typical story, and there's an excellent piece in The New Yorker currently on if people who have got access to The New Yorker on you know, just this tension with people who've got these incurable diseases that you know are going to lead to bad outcomes and there's an indication that something might help. Do you go for it or not? It's mm-hmm. a difficult situation. Yeah, and absolutely. you've got some um, stuff on and you've got some news on attitudes towards junk food advertising. Yeah, it's a really big uh, topic that comes up every now and again as to whether it's a nanny state thing to ban advertising of junk food, especially to vulnerable groups like children. Well, um, there's some new research that's been put out by the Food for Health Alliance, which used to be called Obesity Policy Coalition, that have surveyed Australian adults and found that overwhelmingly they oppose junk food advertising to kids online um, and sort of depending on how you cut that, what that actually looks like in terms of a ban, three quarters of them support a blanket ban on targeting kids online with any unhealthy food or drink marketing um, and then higher pr- pr- proportions sort of supporting uh, the collection of children's personal information for marketing purposes that the government should protect children from marketing unhealthy food and drink products. And so really what this sort of, it, it provides fuel, I suppose, to the people who believe that this should be something that's in policy. They're calling on the federal federal government to um, reform the Privacy Act to set higher standards to protect kids' personal information. And the regulation is a federal government issue rather than a state government issue. So watch that space. But if you've ever had an injury or a surgery, chances are you've been prescribed an opioid. They're an important class of drug for pain relief, but if they're not managed well, people can become dependent on them and they can end up doing more harm than good, which is a pathway all too familiar for Jenny Whale, who was involved in developing new prescribing guidelines published today in the Medical Journal of Australia. It was talking about the benefit and that people might not be getting a benefit that I realised I'd had a lived experience, which was I had severe post-traumatic osteoarthritis and was heading for joint replacement. But I also had four young children and a busy life and was trying to manage the two. And so I was heavily dependent on panadine, so not one of the strongest opioids, but I was taking the maximum dosage per day. I was actually doing harm to my body and I hadn't actually stopped to realise just what was happening until I was in that situation. If you have a joint replacement and you go through a lot of pain, so you actually go on to heavier and heavier medications, so then gradually wean myself off them. One of the issues often with pain management is that you don't have a lot of opportunity or time to have a really long conversation with a healthcare provider who can actually help you and guide you. So it was very much myself just trying to manage my own medication. You said you had an aha moment. Like what would have made your situation better for you? I think my main message was that I'd gone into this whirlwind of trying to manage the pain and not actually stopped and been able to communicate with anyone well, is this pain medication actually helping you? 
What do you hope comes out of these new guidelines? Don't assume that coming off or reducing your dose of opioids is going to be harmful, that it actually might benefit you. Just really look at how you're feeling and monitor for yourself how you're feeling as you gradually taper and not just assume, oh, you're telling me I have to get off this medication. You don't suffer from pain. You don't know what it's like. So how can you tell me what to do? Which was my actual reaction when I first joined this guideline development group. Stop and reflect would be my message from having this experience of being the consumer on this guideline. We can't cure everything, so we need to provide that care and communication and allow people to talk over those issues. Consumer Representative Jenny Whale. These new guidelines recommend having an exit strategy from the first point of prescribing, and they highlight the need for better infrastructure like pain clinics, especially in rural and remote Australia. Senior author on the paper is Daniela Njidic, who joins us now. Welcome, Daniela. Thank you for having me. So the report has 11 guidelines. We won't go through all of them, but what's sort of the main thrust of what you're hoping to change? Well, I guess the main point and something that nicely sort of feeds into what Jenny has highlighted is to use this guideline to really start those conversations between the clinicians and GPs um, and patients to think about at what point it might be appropriate to consider stopping or reducing a dose for an opioid. And we hope that this guideline will actually provide that, um, if you like, a pathway uh, to initiating that conversation and using those recommendations carefully to tailor those plans uh, accordingly that suit both the consumer patient and their GP. Why the focus on opioids? Can you paint us a picture of what the scale of the problem is in Australia? So opioids are one of the most commonly used medications in Australia, but also globally, internationally. And if we look at the current numbers in Australia, we know that over 2 million of Australians start an opioid each year in Australia. But what's really problematic that over time, 5% of those individuals will actually transition to that long-term use or persistent use. And that persistent use commonly can lead to inappropriate use of opioids And we really are trying to tackle that aspect of inappropriate use to try to limit harms associated with these medications. And when we're talking about harms, we've got people admitted for opioid overdose, people die from opioid overdose. Not all of them are from prescriptions, but a large chunk of them are. Correct. A large contribution of that is uh, to opioids. But I think it's also important to think of, you know, other sort of mild symptoms that might also impair quality of life. So, for example, uh, we know that um, opioid side effects can also um, include nausea, constipation, sedation, and that can actually impact on individuals' capacity to live independently. And we also know that there are serious side effects associated with opioid use, including falls or accidental overdose and death that we already have mentioned. But it, you, like you say, a lot of people are on them. They're widely prescribed. Um, pe- people live with chronic pain. What are the alternatives for people who are living with persistent symptoms who really are relying on these drugs to get them through the day? Well, uh, we know that there's really there are really good alternative options out there, but access to those perhaps may not be routinely available to many. 
So, for instance, uh, we would like to advocate for um, access or increased access to non-drug treatment options like physiotherapy or occupational therapy. We also would like to advocate for access to multidisciplinary pain clinics. Um, and obviously, those are really important treatment options. But at this point in time, we have certainly heard from our patients and consumers that that routinely is not available in their sort of everyday um, practice. Yeah, I mean, it's all very well and good if you live in a capital city and you have access to these things. But um, is part of your work, it's sort of outside of the scope of your work really, isn't it, to sort of prescribe to the nation what we need in terms of pain clinics and, and multidisciplinary care? Uh, it is, but we're just hoping that perhaps this guideline can actually be used as a starting point to have those conversations and as a community, uh, you know, start coming together with some of these important solutions and um, during our public consultation period last year, we have actually heard quite, you know, s- strong calls from our consumers and other healthcare professionals that we really need to advocate access to these op- options, non-drug treatment options, if we are going to routinely recommend for opioids to be reduced or stopped over time. So for an individual who is currently on opioids for pain relief, what does deprescribing actually look like for them? Well, we firstly, we would like to see it perhaps happening a bit more than it is at the moment to actually reduce that long-term use or, you know, obviously harms associated with opioids. And essentially what we would like to be seeing is that we have these increased shared decision conversations between patients and their GPs or their clinicians. And ideally, uh, if opioid deprescribing or reduction is identified as sort of goals of care, agreed upon both from GP's point of view and patients, we would like to see a stepwise approach to a clear deprescribing plan on how to reduce opioid doses over time and obviously identify other key options in terms of non-drug treatment options or even other drug treatments that might Mm. be replaced. Always relying on that trusting, ongoing relationship with a GP, which can be a problem for many people in and of itself. Daniela, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Associate Professor Daniela Nyinich from the Charles Perkins Centre and the School of Pharmacy at the University of Sydney. Parkinson's disease is caused by degeneration and damage to groups of nerve cells in the brain. Amongst other things, it causes disabling muscle stiffness, tremor and in some people, dementia. For years, it's been suspected that a significant cause of the brain damage has been chemical toxins. One of the probable culprits is a substance called trichloroethylene, TCE. It's been used to remove grease in industrial processes and in the past used in dry cleaning. Now, a huge study in US Marines has tightened the link even further. One of the lead researchers was Professor Samuel Goldman, who's in the Division of Occupational, Environmental and Climate Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Thanks for having me. So what's the story behind this trichloroethylene and Parkinson's disease before you did your study? What was known? What was known was vanishingly little. There were a handful of case reports of people who had worked with trichloroethylene or TCE, as I'll call it. In 2008, there was a really tantalizing observation of a small cluster of Parkinson's, three individuals who all worked in a small manufacturing plant in Kentucky, and they all worked in very close proximity to a large tank of TCE that they used for vapor degreasing. 
And that spurred us to do the first analytics study in a small cohort of twins who were discordant for Parkinson's. So one twin had Parkinson's and one didn't. And then we compared their occupational histories and we found that the twin who had worked with TCE occupationally had a six-fold increased risk of Parkinson's. But it was a very small study. And there's animal data that it's neurotoxic. Absolutely. And that's what's most compelling, where it induces a pathological picture that looks very much like human Parkinson's disease in rodents. So tell me about this study you did amongst Marine and Navy personnel. Camp Lejeune is one of the largest Marine Corps bases in the United States. It's in North Carolina. And its water supply was found to be contaminated with predominantly TCE and a related compound called PERC or perchloroethylene. And that contamination lasted from the mid-1950s until around 1987 when the wells were taken offline. So this is a huge population. Estimates are over a million people who lived on the base and were exposed to levels of TCE that at some points were more than 70 times the allowable maximum. And you compared that to another military camp where there was uncontaminated water, so a similar population, but they weren't drinking contaminated water. Correct. So what did you find? We found a 70% higher risk of Parkinson's disease among former service members who had resided at Camp Lejeune during that period. But the cohort is still quite young, so I think it's really important to continue to study this group of poisoned, essentially, service members. Now, this doesn't prove cause and effect. One of the things that people say when you're trying to get down to cause and effect is dose. So, for example, if you lived longer on the base, did you have a higher risk of Parkinson's disease? That would strengthen the fact that there was a cause and effect link. We did not see an association with duration on the base, but the issue of dose is extremely difficult to calculate for the base. Did their families live on base? So, in other words, did you see it in spouses? Many of the families did live on base, and we were unable to conduct the study in the spouses because we based our case finding on the Veterans Health Administration, and family members would not be able to receive care through the Veterans Health Administration in general. Does this illuminate anything about Parkinson's disease in general? I mean, there's been a, a flavor of environmental causation. For example, at one point, I think it might have been somebody in California was suggesting that an extract of peppermint might increase the risk. There's been synthetic illicit drugs where they made mistakes in the manufacture of them that have caused outbreaks of Parkinson's related symptoms. Is there a sense here that trichloroethylene might be an important issue for the general public? I believe that it is. There is a lot of data converging to make us believe that TCE, trichloroethylene, is a serious problem and is a potential major player in the cause of Parkinson's disease. So it's used in dry cleaning, isn't it? In the U.S., it's mostly been replaced by a related compound, PERC or tetrachloroethylene, which probably has similar toxicity, but it's still widely used in industry. And it's most importantly, it's throughout the environment. It's in soil, it's in groundwater, it's in food. The levels are generally quite low, but it's there. And if you're interested, you can buy a 50-gallon drum of it on Amazon for $1,200 today without any questions asked. It's used predominantly now for degreasing of metal parts on sort of industrial scale and also the precursor for certain chemicals. 
The general public is being exposed from legacy sources, so former spills, water contamination, and the main route is probably through what's called vapor intrusion. So once TCE gets into the soil, it persists. It can travel, and it can be underneath people's homes without them knowing it, and it can enter the homes through cracks in the foundation or through pipes. And that's probably the biggest risk to the public in general. So what's the advice for regulators? Well, if you don't look for it, you're not going to find it. So my advice would be to look for it because there are a lot of what are called plumes of TCE around former or current dry cleaners that used to use it or around manufacturing or in California, a location that's got lots of TCE is where the chip making plants were in Silicon Valley. So it's out there. So we need to look. And if we find it, we need to alert people and remediate it. And the other important approach to this is to quit using it and quit releasing it into the environment. As you said, this group of people were young in relation to the average age that people get Parkinson's disease, which is much later, you know, 10, 20 years later. Did you pick up people who didn't qualify for the diagnosis of Parkinson's, but might be getting a bit stiff with a little bit of a shake or something like that? We did try to study that. And Parkinson's disease has what we call a, a long prodrome and can sometimes manifest as loss of sense of smell, certain types of sleep disorders, things like constipation and erectile dysfunction. And in fact, we found that several of the prodromal features of very, very early Parkinson's disease were more common in individuals at Camp Lejeune. Samuel Goldman, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Professor Sam Goldman, who's in the Division of Occupational, Environmental and Climate Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. And if you want to know what the situation is in Australia, it's very similar. The Navy has acknowledged that this can be a cause of Parkinson's disease. Um, the various states have sites which they're concerned about, um, but they, they sometimes tell you about them, sometimes don't. So it is an issue in Australia um, and um, probably needs a bit more attention. Let's change now to tonsils. Having your tonsils out as a child used to be almost routine, but the realisation that the decision to have a tonsillectomy was often arbitrary, usually unnecessary, and not worth the risk of complications such as bleeding. And the incidence of the operation has been drastically reduced uh, in young children. But what about adults with frequent sore throats? British authorities noticed an uptake, uptick in tonsillectomy rates, particularly in young adults, accompanied by associated complications. And that prompted a clinical trial to see whether the surgery was merited. Ear, nose and throat surgeon James O'Hara was one of the researchers. Welcome to The Health Report. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. So who did you study in this report? In this, who, who, who did you enter? What, what criteria allowed you to enter people into this trial? So in the UK, we follow quite a strict set of guidelines which uh, people have to meet in order to qualify for uh, receiving a tonsillectomy or discussing the pros and cons of a tonsillectomy. And they are roughly seven episodes of tonsillitis in a year five episodes in a year for two years or three episodes in a year for three years. And, and they've been in place for quite some time. So participents who entered our trial had to meet those national guidelines. And what how was, really the trying to was do, this just yeah. a sore throat or when the doctor looked in, the tonsils were enlarged with pus on them? What was the story there? 
So this is what we call a pragmatic trial. So it has to reflect everyday clinical practice. And the reality is that for most patients seeing their GP, this is based on the history. You know, it, it, it should be quite a clear history. When patients have tonsillitis, they know about it. They feel absolutely awful, terrible sore throat, fever, and it probably lasts for a week or two. So we don't tend to do throat swabs or, or any other investigation in addition to the history, really. So if they qualified, they were randomised to either having a tonsillectomy pretty much straight away or continuing with usual treatment from their GP. Yeah, correct. But of course, we have to recognise that we, we, we managed to recruit 450 patients who agreed to enter the trial. And actually, having those patients agree to enter the trial in itself is remarkable because there were 450 patients who came to secondary care expecting to be offered a tonsillectomy. So it's it's the willingness and the kindness of patients to help take research forward that helps us with this research. We're now in a position to help future participants and patients make a decision on whether they wish to have a tonsillectomy or not. And they were fairly young. I think the average age was 23. Yeah, and that's a reflection of patients who are seeking a tonsillectomy. But of course, there's a range there. That just happens to be the average age. The trial results, if I got them right, is that depending on how you measured it, was up to a 60% reduction in sore throats over the next two years. Yeah, that's correct. So the primary analysis was what we call an intention to treat. So patients stay in their randomised arm, either whether they had a tonsillectomy or conservative management, and you and and you, and you analyse the patients in those groups as they stay. So so the headline figure is is roughly over two years, all things taken into consideration, a, a reduction of about half the number of sore throats in patients who had an operation. But as you quite rightly say. If you look at those participants who just had a tonsillectomy, it, as the trial randomised them to, and those patients who were treated conservatively as the trial randomised them to, then actually the effect was was more like a reduction of 60%. So there, there, are, there are limitations in how you can analyse clinical trials like this, but it didn't really matter how we analysed it. The, the, the result was strongly in favour of a tonsillectomy, even with all the caveats of you can imagine some patients not wishing to undergo a surgery and some patients absolutely insisting that they want to have the surgery. So we did see quite a lot of what we call crossing over from, from treatment arm to the other arm, which, which, is, which is always a problem when you're looking at surgical interventions like this. So um, the conclusions were, were as strong as, 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 as we could hope for, really, from this type of surgical trial. And the complication rates? So in other words, this is a risk-benefit equation here for people making the choice about which treatment to have. Yeah, no, absolutely. So let's be clear, what we're not saying is everybody with recurrent tonsillitis should have a tonsillectomy. What we're saying is this trial gives you gives patients the evidence and doctors the evidence and healthcare professionals the evidence to sit and wait and make up an informed decision because there's a reduction in sore throats from having the surgery. But yes, there's the risks. And we know that there's about 14 days of sore throat after an operation, which this trial took account of. But there's also a risk of about one in five of bleeding episodes afterwards. Now, bleeding tends to be mild, and we didn't have a patient who required returning to the operating theatre. But it's very clear from a lot of, of, of data throughout the UK that the bleeding rate has gone up. And we don't really understand why. It looks like it's roughly doubled in the last 10 or 15 years. There's many, many reasons for that. Now, we picked up bleeding in one in five because we were 
we were specifically asking patients these questions. They were being phoned two weeks after the operation. So any minor bleeding, which most of the bleeding will have been, was reported. But no, patients need to take this into consideration. But what we've done, hopefully, with this trial is moved on from this myth, as you very eloquently put in the, in the introduction, that the operation isn't worth it, that the complications are too severe. So hopefully the, the evidence is there now for patients and clinicians to weigh this up. And just finally, this is not life-saving, but it, it allows a discussion about informed consent. You can have the operation with a known complication rate. It will reduce your sore throats, but probably won't eliminate them altogether. That's probably a reasonable statement. Yes, you can. What we're doing is reducing tonsillitis. Yes, patients can. Anyone can still get viral sore throats. But what we have done is show definitively that there is a benefit of undergoing a tonsillectomy if you are really struggling with your, with your recurrent tonsillitis. Look, thank you very much for joining us. No, thank you for having me. James O'Hara is an ear, nose and throat surgeon and also was in the Population Health Sciences Institute at Newcastle University in the UK. And that's the health report for this week. But we'll see you next week. Certainly will. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.